Lord, help us today to be humble before you, to allow your word to do its work in our lives, that we would see you um, high and lifted up. We would see you as our great God and Savior. We would see Christ being glorified even in this text, and that your people would be strengthened, empowered, and um, convicted by your truth this morning. Allow me, as your messenger, to simply reflect your truth faithfully to your people. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by saying this text actually begins in chapter 7 and verse 73, just the last part of it. It says this, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. The seventh month was the festival month. It was the time when they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, Yom Kippur. And so what we want to emphasize here and seek to understand here as we, we look at the, I want to say the whole of Scripture and bring it down to this point, is that this section of Scripture is an incredibly important section of Scripture. What we have here is one of the ten revivals in the Old Testament. This is a revival passage. One of the great preachers of the 20th century was a man uh, by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was greatly respected by um, his peers because he was actually a doctor, and he was on his way to being the doctor of the royal family. But God got a hold of his heart, and he submitted himself to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And his ministry really rocked um, the world of England at that particular point in time. And toward the end of his life, this is what he said. He says, I am profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. Yet alas, the whole idea of revival seems to have become strange to so many good Christian people. There are some who even seem to resent the very idea and actually speak and write against it. Such an attitude is due both to a serious misunderstanding of the scriptures and to a woeful ignorance of the history of the church. Anything, therefore, that can instruct God's people in this matter is very welcome. So woven throughout the Old Testament narrative, there are ten such movements of God. A revival under Jacob and Samuel and Moses and Elijah and Asa and under Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, and then now Nehemiah here in chapter 8. But what is revival? How do we define it? It is often used to describe, you know, a week-long series of, of meetings. Come to our revival on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night we'll finish with a big, a big meeting, right? That's often how revival is used, especially if you've been in the South. You'll see banners, revival services at such and such Baptist church. But oftentimes you think of revival, you think of a big tent and loud preaching and craziness going on. There's different views of what revival is all about. But it is a biblical word. It is a word that is found throughout Scripture, and it's used in two ways. It's used in a physical sense to describe the power of God 
bringing someone back to life, reviving them, or bringing them back to health, reviving their health. That's how it's used in a a physical sense. But it is also used in a spiritual sense to describe the unique work of God on spiritually lazy, apathetic, and complacent people that suddenly are aroused by God from their laziness, from their apathy, from their complacency, and brought into a renewed spiritual fervor for God and the things of God. It results in people or churches or even communities crying out to God, saying, revive us out of our lethargy. Wake us up. Renew our hearts for your glory, God. Now, all this sounds really exciting, doesn't it? You might be sitting there saying, Pastor Rod, yes, let's have a revival. Let's shake this place up. We want a revival. It all sounds really exciting. And believe me, if there's a revival going on, I would love to be a part of it. But we must be really careful here. Because many times the church has sought to recreate revivals by somehow orchestrating or manipulating or, or, or somehow conjuring up the experiences or the, uh, the activities that we see in revivals in the Bible. Somehow if you put together some spiritual formula, you're guaranteed to have revival. But friends, that's not how it works. Revival is a sovereign act of God. We're not like people dancing around down here saying, come on, God, give us a revival, give us a revival. It doesn't happen that way. Revival happens when God breathes into his people with his gospel by his Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Jesus says? He says, the Spirit blows where he wills. See, revival cannot be scheduled. It happens when God's Spirit chooses to bring life to a people or to a church or even to a community. But one thing is always true. True revival will always produce undeniable evidence of God produced fruit. And here are some ways that fruit is actually fleshed out. There'll be a a renewed hunger for the word of God, where God's people long and love to hear it preached. Sometimes there's a, 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 a repentance, there's a confession of sin. I wouldn't say sometimes. There is repentance and confession of sin as a result of the word of God being preached where people see themselves as God has revealed them to be. And they confess their sins and they repent. And the third kind of fruit that takes place when revival comes is a conforming of one's lives to the will of God, a desire to live life in accordance to what God has said in his word, a desire to please him, a fresh desire to say, we're going to stop doing this and we're going to do this because this is what you desire. And so when you look at revivals in the Old Testament, they all have one thing in common. And that's what we're going to look at today because the revival that's taking place here actually takes place over the course of three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, 
in chapter 10. You're going to see it. The Word of God is central in chapter 8. Confession begins in 8, carries over. And then ultimately, there's this renewed desire to, to, to live their lives for the glory of God that takes place in chapter 10. It's quite an incredible story. And I hope you enjoy what God has for us here. Isn't it great? God has recorded for us a revival. And we can jump in and say, God, I want to learn. I want to be hungry. I want my eyes and ears open. So this is a revival passage. But this is also a transitional passage. This is a transitional passage, first of all, from Nehemiah to Ezra. What's really interesting in this book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah, for the most part now, is out of the picture. He, we, we have the story of Nehemiah told by Nehemiah. I was doing this, and I was this, and I was that. And now Nehemiah is just talked about in the third person until you really get to chapter 13 when he comes back. The main character now that God is working through, the leader that is on the stage, so to speak, in this narrative now is Ezra. Secondly, there's this move now from restoring the walls to restoring the people. Yes, God wanted the walls to be restored, but the walls being restored were not his final goal. His ultimate goal was the restoring of his people. In fact, before the walls were restored, a number of years earlier, under Zerubbabel and then even Ezra, there was the beginning of the restoring of the temple there in Jerusalem. And that's all good. It's helpful. But God is concerned ultimately about his people. Now, in the, in the, the outflow of the story, the walls being repaired and being built, and the gates being secured, now provides security for the people. There's a sense in which, even when you're, you're interacting with someone who's struggling with something in life, you want to be able to minister the word. And Nehemiah does. He stirs up the people with the word of God based on the Mosaic covenant. If you do this, I will scatter you. If you obey me, I will gather you. And based on that, he says, come, let's rebuild the walls. So the Word of God has been there throughout the story so far. It has been the motivator for these people to rebuild the walls. But the focus is about on building the walls. Now the focus shifts to restoring the people. But there's something else that's even, might want to say, bigger in the backdrop that we're seeing now taking shape among the people of God. And it is this. It is a transition from ritualism and ultimately rebellion to hearts being conformed to the word of God. Let me explain why I'm saying this. The reason Nehemiah was in exile before he came back to Jerusalem is because God's people, Israel and Judah, had rebelled against God. And God had sent prophets to them and said, listen, if you continue to do this, there is going to be judgment. There is going to be consequences. You are going to be overrun. You are going to be taken captive. And even the Mosaic Covenant, if you're unfaithful and rebel, God says, I will scatter you. If you return to me and are obedient, I will gather you. And so there's this, there's this transition from these people who had been, the I would say, the lingering um, recipients of the consequences of their rebellion coming back now and wanting to be obedient. 
You see, if you go back in the story, God had said to Israel and Judah about their rebellion this. You honor me with your lips, but what? Your heart is far from me. In other words, you can say all the right things, but if your heart is not oriented to being obedient to me, it doesn't mean anything. That's Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 1, 11 says, I have had enough of your sacrifices. In other words, God's people are saying, well, we're sacrificing. We're going through the rituals that you commanded here. But God is saying, listen, I don't care about your sacrifices. Because your hearts are in rebellion to me. Or how about Amos 5, 21? I hate your feasts and solemn assemblies. How could God say he hates our feasts? These are feasts to honor God. These are solemn assemblies where we're we're seeking to, to be spiritual. And God says, I hate them. Why? Because you are in rebellion against me. See, they were not taken captive. They were not overrun because of some small thing. They continually and consistently rebelled, but they maintained a formalistic form of worship. And so this is a transitional passage that's saying, hey, listen, what has to be central among the people of God is not the ritualism. A temple, even though it is present, is not sufficient. What what we need among God's people is a hunger and a conformity and the centrality of the word of God. So God is gathering his people in Jerusalem so that now he can refresh them with a visitation from on high to the people and restore them to this rightful place with him. Now hear this. God is a revelation giver. He has created us with the capacity to be revelation receivers. And we've talked about this before. You didn't come to church this morning and on your way, look over into a farm and see cows gathering for worship. The dogs in your neighborhood didn't this morning gather together and say, let's have a Bible study. All right? Cockroaches don't sit around and memorize God's word. Why? Because they are part of God's creation, but we, mankind, has been created uniquely with the ability to receive what God has revealed. That is unique, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful. And since God has breathed out his word as his children, we must breathe it in. He has revealed his heart so that our hearts can be refreshed by him. Oh, friend, don't take it lightly. We who have 15, 20 copies of the Bible at home, don't take it lightly that we have God's revealed word. Don't take his word for granted. See the privilege of knowing and knowing God and knowing his word. Listen, a few passages just to to drive this home. Psalm 119, all of these will come from there. 119, 103. God's word is sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Is that our attitude toward God's Word? God's Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's saying I'm going to allow God's Word to show me what I need to do next, to guide me in my journey. Is that how we approach God's Word? 119, 111, God's Word is the joy of my heart. When you hear God's Word read or you hear God's Word preached or you have the opportunity to sit down and read it for yourself, does it bring joy to you or is it drudgery? Psalm 119, 127, God's Word is loved above gold. In modern day terms, maybe it be, it's loved above your portfolio, your retirement package, your 403, whatever it might be. You put the numbers out there in the letters. You love God's word more than those things. Psalm 119, 131. We pant because we long for your commandments. A commandment? I don't want to be commanded all over the place. Why would I long for God's commandments? Because that is a word that describes God's word. And he's saying, I long for God's word. Do we have that? There's a delight. There's a sweetness. There's a joy. There's a longing for the treasure of God's word. And that's why in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12 and 13, it says this, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division. In other words, it pierces through the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. This, this word of God is the means by which God measures and judges his created mankind. And so now as we come to Nehemiah chapter 8, a revival passage, a transitional passage, the central idea of these few verses is this. The centrality, we see here, the centrality of the living, breathing word of God in the hearts of the people of God. There is a need for the centrality of the living, breathing word of God in the hearts of the people of God. And friends, there is a need here at Gateway that the word of God is central it's a living, breathing word that it is central in the hearts and lives of all who are part of Gateway Bible Church. Take away the Bible, throw it away, neglect the Bible. We are not feeding. We are not doing what God wants us to do. It must be central. And it is in this passage. And it is a means by which we can go through this passage, although it is a revival, although this is a move of God, there are some things that we can learn for our benefit from this, not necessarily to say revival will come if we do these things, but principles that are true, that are always true. Notice, first of all, <clears throat> a hungry people. How hungry the people are. Are. Remember, the walls have been completed in 52 days of hard work. And hard work where they faced external threats, internal squabbles over money, 
and even the leadership was challenged. And they had ended up building the wall, if you remember, with a brick in one hand and a sword or spear in the other. That's hard work. But in 52 days, the wall was completed. And notice also that it was the seventh month, as I mentioned earlier. It's the festival month. It's that month when they, they pause and they stop and they celebrate these festivals. Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, Feast of Booths. And this day was a day set aside for rest that would turn into a day of revival. And so there was already among the people some anticipation going on. We can get that from the passage. There's some things that are already in place. But let's read verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I'll pop all three of these up here on the screen so you can see them, but just notice how they gathered. They gathered as one man. In other words, they saw themselves as a unit. They saw themselves as a corporate body. And it means they all, it's like they're all packing into Times Square, right? They're all gathered in this one place, this water gate. And we're talking, you know, 30 to 40,000 people all gathered. And what do they say? They say to Ezra, bring the book. Well, what book? The book of the law of Moses. We want the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you want to be specific. We want that. Bring it. And how did they behave? A little later in the story, we find that as that was read, that they were all attentive. They're hungry. They're eager. They can't wait to hear what God has to say, even if it's something that is going to convict them of sin. Even if it's a, a word of scolding or a rebuke or words of comfort and, and forgiveness, they're ready. They're hungry. And they call for Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses because they ultimately don't want to hear from Ezra. They want to hear from God. This has not been part of the norm of their context. They haven't been hearing from the word of the Lord like this, and they're gathered together to hear. There's an old Puritan preacher years ago, and he was preaching for about an hour, and he's winding up his sermon, but the congregation started to yell out, Preach on! Preach on! My kind of guy. Um, and so he did. Now, I'm not saying that here at Gateway, that is the attitude that we have to have. We're not going to measure whether something is necessarily successful or it's good preaching based on how long. It's, like it's better if it's an hour and 20 minutes or two hours. But there's, there's a hunger among these people. That's the point. This is an example of, of the evidence of hunger that we see among the people of God. I remember David Platt um, telling the story about a, a trip he took to China, and I may not have all the facts right, but it's the essence of what's going on. He, he went to a, a, a secret church, and it was basically in an apartment. 
And while he, he got there, he was thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach, you know, I'm going to teach them maybe for an hour, maybe an maybe, you know, maybe hour and a half or something like that. He gets done, and the people are like, oh, we want to tell us what the Old Testament's about. And so he systematically went through each book of the Old Testament, boom, 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 and the people are like, oh, this is so good. And he thought he was done. <laughs> but the people said, tell us about the New Testament. And just for hour upon hour, people are all stuffed in this room, sitting on a hard floor with little flashlights looking into whatever bits of the Bible they have, and they are hungry to hear what God and his word says. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's a context of both of these illustrations. The Puritans always lived with the reality that this may be the last time they would be allowed to gather together. And so they wanted to soak it all up when they could. In other words, they weren't going to rush through it just to say, well, we got through church today. They wanted to hear from God. In fact, if they had a little hourglass and that pastor didn't go as long as he should have, they felt like they had been gypped, that they had been short changed somewhat. So it wasn't unusual for Puritan preachers to preach two hours. In that contemporary Chinese context, this was an underground secret church. They're not going to do this all the time. They're gathered together. Those people know that, that they could be arrested. They could be stormed by the government police, and they could be taken to prison. This might be the last time that someone, at least for a while, is actually going to have the Word of God explained and taught. And so they're like, we don't, we don't care if our behind is a little sore or if our knees are hurting a little bit. We want to hear. You see, for them, the Word of God is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And when, when that verse was written, please understand this, they didn't just run off to Safeway and get some honeycomb. That was considered to be a luxury. To have a honey and a honeycomb was like, oh, this is pleasure. It's like, well, it wouldn't be me, but it's like you going out for lobster or something like that. I don't like lobster. I like steak. Okay. It was a luxury. So this, this gold and this honeycomb describe the, the beauty and the desire for God's word being far greater than those desires. And then, of course, they're attentive. When the word here is, 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 is read, their hunger is evidenced by their attentiveness. The, the idea there is that they're, they're, they're paying attention. They're eager to hear. They're, they're looking to learn. I'll be honest. If I or someone else just started to read from Genesis and you know, you're like, okay, we've been doing it for two hours, you're probably going to be a little distracted. You know, people are going to start yawning. I understand. I get it. Okay, I'm with you. And so that's why it's so remarkable to read what we read here. They are so hungry that they're willing to sit for five-hour chunks and hear the Word of God read and taught and explained. And if you find yourselves not getting much out of the reading of God's Word, or even 
if you're sitting under preaching that seems to be long, one of the questions I would challenge you with is this. Um, what are you putting into it? See, we're living in a country and in a context where we're so used to being entertained, aren't we? You know, you go into the movie theater, you sit down, it's like, oh, this is nice and comfortable. I've got my, I've got my coffee or my coffee. Well, for me, it's coffee. But you have your Coke, you've got your bucket of popcorn, you sit back, and it's like, oh, okay, good. There it is for two hours. You know, right? This is where you are for two hours. You have to do nothing except that. You come to church, and it's like, it's been 15 minutes. You're like, man, this is hard. Well, you know, and we give you coffee, we give you donuts, we give you bagels, <laughs> all right? And if you're not getting the coffee, understand, that's just there to help you, okay? But we're so used to being entertained that we've lost the art of active listening, of active participation in the context of the preaching and the reading of the Word of God. Now, all of you educators out there know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a responsibility on the part of everyone who is sitting in a classroom, and in particular, everyone who's sitting in the context of church, to be an active listener for the glory of God. It was so important that even years ago, when the Westminster Catechism was put together, one of the questions was this, what is required from those who hear the word preached, or we could even add there, read. Here's the answer. It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the Scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the Word of God, meditate and confer it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives." That's far different than, okay, pastor, you know, shake me up. What do I need to do? No, you come to church and you're saying, I'm one of God's children. I'm hungry for the word. Give it to me. Show me what I need to do. Show me why God is great. Show me why God's word will help me to live my life today. I want to hear. I want to learn. I want to grow. And friends, attending church on Sunday morning is not... And not being hungry for the Word of God is like going to Outback Steakhouse on an empty stomach only to sit in a booth listening to the music while reading the menu. Think about that illustration and how silly that would look. Or like every morning I get up. When I get up in the morning, my cat Timon, we have Timon and Pumbaa, all you Disney people will understand that analogy. We have Timon and Pumbaa. Timon is always there at the door. I open the door um, from my bedroom, and he's right there, and he's like, oh, meow, 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 you know, and he's, he will not stop until I put food in the little tray. I put the food in the tray, and he walks away and gets on the couch. It's like coming to church, like Timon, right? Oh, I want to hear, I want to hear. And then when I actually get to church, I'm not eating. My point here is this. There's a responsibility on the part of God's people to say, God, do I want to hear from you? And hopefully get into a place where you say, yes, I do. And coming hungry, salivating, not because of any preacher, but because of what the preacher is preaching. The word of God is on display. It is food for everyone who is present. 
Are you hungry for the word of God to be central in your life and in the church? Do you demonstrate that by your readiness for the word of God and your eager attentiveness when it is read and preached? Do you delight and long for the sweetness and joy of the word of God? The people are hungry, and now they call on Ezra, a faithful preacher. Ezra, a faithful preacher. There is a hungry people, but there's also a faithful preacher. Look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. When you look at revivals in, in the history of the church, you will typically see God using a key preacher to bring about that revival. It comes through that preacher's faithfulness to God and faithfulness to preach what is there in the text. You had that in the Great Awakening through the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. You had that in Geneva through the preaching of John Calvin. You had that in many ways in England under the preaching of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. There were other faithful pastors that were pastoring at that point in time, but, but they were all looking to Lloyd-Jones as, as the one who was directing things. God speaks to his people through his chosen vessel, but ultimately it is God who is speaking in the power of his spirit through that vessel. That's why as a pastor, it's not my job to somehow be the one that people are looking at. My job is to be the mouthpiece for God's text to actually work through. My job is to take it from text to audience and to, to be faithful to that. So before Nehemiah ever got to Jerusalem, God was already at work in a man by the name of Ezra. Now, we need to go back to the book of Ezra just to see a little bit about him. Go back to Ezra chapter 7 in your Bibles. It's not too far back. Ezra chapter 7. There's some really incredible and beautiful things that we can learn just in, in Ezra 7 about Ezra the man in particular. Ezra 7 and verse 6. We find out in verses, verse 6 a little bit about um, who he was. This Ezra went up from Babylon, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So he was, he was already gifted. He, had a, he certainly had a, a knowledge of the word of God. So skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And that's kind of actually a theme through both books. The hand of the Lord was on Nehemiah, the hand of the Lord was also on Ezra. Now, jump down to verse 10. I love this verse. In fact, for me, this is, this is like a, a pastor's, this is a pastor's verse. You'll get why I'm saying that in just a minute. Notice how Ezra and his heart is described. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules and rules in all Israel. So Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his or God's statutes and rules in Israel. So what we could actually say here, and get this, this is wonderful, just for the sense of who we are as a church, Ezra here set his heart to do what? First of all, to knowing. <laughs> knowing God's word. To doing it, which is applying God's word. 
and then to teaching it the statutes and rules in Israel. That's proclaiming God's word. He, he, he would fit right in here at Gateway, knowing, applying, and proclaiming God's truth. This is what he was about. This is what he'd been created for. This was his heart's desire. And now for, for such a time as this, God, through the lips of the people of Israel, is summoning Ezra to stand before the thirty to 40,000 people and proclaim the law of Moses, the very word of God. Now, one of the things you should never do in preaching is talk about what is not in the text. But guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to talk about what's not in the text. Notice what you don't find here. Ezra is not looking to be cool or hip. There's nothing in this text that tells us that Ezra was cool or hip and trying to be cool or hip to relate to the people of God. Ezra's not looking to be funny. He's not telling jokes or, or looking to build rapport with the people. I mean, he's not kind of coming out on the stage saying, hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, all right, good. We're going to read God's word today. Everyone okay with that? Good. Let's get out. Let's jump right in here together, all right? Oh, one, two, three. Let's go. He's not doing that. Ezra's not looking to be authentic. I want to tell you about my struggle, being fully transparent. It's a place for authenticity. It's a trace, place for, for being transparent in a right way. But he's not doing that here, is he? Ezra's not looking to impress people with his massive intellect. No, Ezra's passion, his heart's desire is to honor God by faithfully studying the word of God, by seeking to live a life in accordance with that revealed word, and then to teach his word to Israel. His job is to be faithful as a preacher. The best, I shouldn't say the best, but probably one of the better illustrations I know of describing that is this, that <clears throat> this is all like, the church is like, a, is like a restaurant. God is the chef. He's creating the food. He's back in the kitchen. He's creating the food. You are the people sitting at the table. I'm the waiter. I go back to the kitchen, and I get the plate that has the food on it, and I bring it as carefully to the table as I can and set it down for you and say, here is the word of God. There's no need for me, once I get that word, to say, you know what? God really needs to move the potatoes over here and move over the broccoli because they're never going to eat it if they see it this way. And somehow come down and say, this is, this is a little better than how it was put together and I'll give it to you. No, 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 no. My job is not to mess with it. I don't need to spice it up with some, you know, some, um, I don't know, some chipotle sauce or something like that. My job is simply to say, this is what God says. Here it is. By the way, this is broccoli. You're not going to like it. This is potatoes. You'll love them because they're crispy. And this is steak. Enjoy. It's my job. And there are times we're going to come to a passage of Scripture and say, all right, this is broccoli, guys. But we have to deal with it. We've got to eat it. It's good for you. We always want steak or cheesecake for that matter, right? But we need the whole counsel of God to strengthen us and to fill us. So God not only brings here an understanding that there needs to be a, a hungry people, but there needs to be a faithful preacher. And so with this hungry people and a faithful preacher, we're ready to have the word of God exposed 
to the hearts of all. And this ultimately is the ministry of the word in this passage, the exposed word. Let's read from verse 3 all the way down through verse 8. And what we're going to say kind of interacts with all the text, but I think you can see that unfolding here. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of all the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that he had made for, that, for the purpose. And beside him... And there's a list of guys. There's six on one side, on the right side, and I think seven on the left side, or it's the other way around. But there's these other guys that are up there on the platform with him. They're there to give authority and agreement to what he's saying. It's very likely they were the leaders or elders in the context of that community at that particular point in time. And they're, they're setting a, 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 a stamp of approval on what is happening here with Ezra reading. Jump down to verse 7. And, and Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shabbatiah and Hodiah and Messiah and Kalitha, uh, Azariah and Jazabad and Hanan and Peliah, the Levites. So these Levites now come and they're helping the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So I want to break this down in three ways. First of all, I want to just acknowledge that there is preparation that is going on here. God has been preparing the people. There's a providential preparation taking place. It is certainly the circumstances of, 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 of Nehemiah coming back and them building the wall, but God is now visiting his people on this day, and it is a festival day that has been orchestrated by the calendar of God among the people of God to be a day where God is going to work. Then there's the preparation of the people. They're hungry. They're united, right? And there's Ezra, who has been preparing for years to actually stand before the people of God and to, to preach and proclaim the word of God. But notice, not only that, they prepared a platform, which you can say there's a pulpit on that platform. When you think about why do we have pulpits today, much of that comes from this text of Scripture, the idea of this platform, of course, was not just so that, well, you know, here I'm Ezra and I'm, you know, look at me, I'm so great. The whole point here is we're talking about they didn't have technology. And you got 30 to 40,000 people that need to hear. So you put the person up high so that they can actually proclaim. When I was first in ministry, preparing for ministry, we, we were taught how to preach without a microphone. Today we have microphones. But back in the day, Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield in particular would go out in, in, in the country and he'd find a particular place and he would bellow a sermon. And you can proclaim when Jesus spoke uh, 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 on the, um, the, the, Be uh, the Beatitudes, the, um, where is it called? Come on, help me out here. Sermon on the Mount, yeah. There, there, was, there was this... He stood in a place where, where even the, the setting helped to give the acoustics for the moment. Okay? So what's happening here is they build this platform, but there's also some symbolism there too, right? All right the Word of God is high. It's above. It's not something we're looking over. It's something we're looking up to. And of course, there is a person who's reading, so this, this creates this, this attitude of respect, and we'll get that here in just a minute. 
So there's this, this, there's this preparation that's taking place. And friends, in order, in our context, for, for ministry to, to be faithful, the ministry of the word to be faithful, there has to be preparation all across the board. That's why you have in your hands a handout. That's why we have PowerPoint. That's why I, whoever else is ministering the word, has spent time in preparation, not just for this sermon, but also for the discussion that's going to take place um, through life as we're building on the theology that we've learned through the years. There's not only that, there's respect. Secondly, there's respect through this passage. Time from early morning till midday. Now just think about that. That's a long, long time. There's nothing here where people are coughing or jangling their keys because they want to get to the restaurant before anyone else. But there's time, and people are giving the time. They're, they're, the, the people were all there. These are all that could understand. So it included children. Children that could understand. Standing with the rest of the people. And of course, they're standing while the word is read. Now the church in Scotland has... Um, Presbyterian Church in Scotland has a practice where they'd have a man called the Beadle. He would literally, at the beginning of the service, he would walk from the back with a Bible. He would walk up to the pulpit and he would lay the, the Bible down and he would open it to the text that was going to be read. Then he would go down and he would get the pastor who was going to speak that day and he would lead him up. And then the Word of God was read. During that whole time, everyone is standing. Why? Out of respect for what? God was doing and the reading of the word of God. Friend, this, this, this whole section is laced with respect. But notice there's also exposition, exposition. And I just want to highlight here quickly six words that are used here that may help us understand um, what is taking place with the exposition of the word of God. There's more to say about these things, but I'll be brief. Um, notice that the Word of God was brought. <laughs> it's a good thing, right? There's a lot of things you can bring to a gathering of 30,000, 40,000 people. They asked for the Word of God, and Nehemiah, or say Ezra, brought the Word of God. Now, this morning, did you bring the Word of God with you? I mean, coming to church to gather, and when a significant portion of that time is the ministry of the Word, we would hope that the Word of God is brought by those who are coming to listen. Is it brought? Secondly, not only is it brought, but it's opened, right? You can bring the Word of God, but it's another thing to open the Word of God. And there are churches around this country who have Bibles in their pews, but on a Sunday morning do not even reference the Bibles that sit in their pews, so it's not just having the Bible. Look at my Bible. It's, it's red, and it's got a little design on it and stuff like that. And look at the cool little index thing. That's great. You can have it, but is it open? Right? Notice the third thing. It's red. It's red. This is not some cold technical reading. This is a passionate reading of the Word of God. Now, I want to be gentle here. I want to be kind I'm really, really thankful for those that are part of our church family who have taken on the responsibility of reading the Word of God. But I'll just be honest with you, in our American culture, the reading of God's Word is something that has not been taught. Um, my dad, who's British, uh, when he was alive and I was pastoring and he was in town, I would have him read 
I think I've shared this before, but he would read a passage. Let's say it was a chapter in some book. Uh, maybe it's a narrative. And honestly, by the time he was done, you're like, I don't need any more. I could go home now. Because the way that he read it, the sense that he gave when he, when he walked through that particular text, the nuances that were there told the story. You were brought into it. There's a reading of God's word that we should really work at and begin to kind of strengthen in. And I'm saying that for myself, too. I, th- I think this is one of the things that's lacking in pastoral training is the reading of the word of God. That's what they did, though. But notice in verses 7 and 8, there's three things that I think flow out of verses, in particular, verse 8. In verse 7, it talks about them, them understanding, but all that's kind of fleshed out again in verse 8. They read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the idea of giving the sense here. Some people would say, oh, this is, this is talking about translating because they were thinking they were translating it from Hebrew into Aramaic. The problem is there that the people apparently already knew Hebrew because we have some other books that are written in Hebrew. So that doesn't seem to be true for this passage. Um, it, it's, it's likely, and I, I really believe what it's talking about here, is that they were, they were exposing the text. They were exhorting the text. They were explaining the text. That is how the ESV translates it, right? They were giving the sense of what this text is about. So it was read, but now it needs to be explained. And so with that explanation, the goal of that explanation is not saying, well, okay, good, you explained it. The goal is that people, what? Understand it. And having understood it rightly, they're able to do what? They're able to apply it effectively. And friends, this is, this is what it means to, to preach. If you want to put it you know, in, in a formal sense and summarize, it's reading God's word, it's explaining God's word so that people understand God's word, and then it's applying God's word. We don't have to make the word of God Relevant. The Word of God already is relevant. Now, certainly we can explain the Word of God by using contemporary illustrations and that kind of stuff. But do we actually believe that the Word of God is relevant for today? Oh, it's certainly relevant for you know, the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, but it's, yeah, we're kind of past that. No, 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 friends. This Word of God is living and breathing now. And it's what we need now. We just need to see how it is relevant. This was no exercise in head knowledge. This was an exercise in heart surgery. That's what's going on in this passage. And listen, the, the Word of God points to Christ and His gospel. That is why we have stated in our mission and vision statement, this is what we have. We exist to glorify God by being a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason we have both of those things there is that we're committed to the Word of God, but we're also committed to the fact that Jesus is the message of the Word of God. The gospel is central in the Word of God. And so we need to make sure that every time we come to God's truth, we are knowing and applying and proclaiming 
not just the word of God, but also the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember, Christ is predicted in the Old Testament. He's revealed in the gospels. He's preached in the Acts of the Apostles. He's explained in the epistles. He is expected in the book of Revelation. He is throughout the word of God. And that's why in a book like the Gospel of John, we're told there in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the writer of Hebrews gives even further clarity to what's going on. And he says right at the beginning of his book, as he introduces it long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so as we, as we open up God's word, that word is always going to take us to Christ. It's always going to take us to the gospel. So there's this hungry people, there's this faithful preacher, there is this exposed Word, this exposed text for the benefit and the health of all who are present. But notice also, finally, there is a, there's a humble response. And we're looking in particular here at verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. Just three things for us to note here. First of all, a prayer of thankfulness. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Now, be careful with the, the language here. It's not that Ezra is somehow blessing God as if God needs a blessing, right? What Ezra is doing here is he's offering a prayer of blessing, I mean, a prayer of thanksgiving for what has been read, what has been exposed to God's people from God's word. So there's this prayer, there's this joy that comes as a result of hearing the Word of God read and hearing the Word of God explained. Secondly, there's agreement. Amen is what they say. And they say it twice, and they say it with hands lifted up. The word amen means so be it. It is a word of agreement. So when I say that Jesus is Lord, and you say what? Amen. What do you mean? You are agreeing with me, but here, you're also agreeing with each other. And there's a beauty in that. When God's people gather together and together say, amen. And here's what they're doing. They're listening. And here's, here's Ezra, and he's blessing God. He's praising God. He's thankful for God. He's leading them in a prayer. And they are saying to God, so be it. They're saying, God, you are right, and I'm agreeing with you. And the lifted hand simply is a way for them to, to express, listen, there, there's nothing that we have. Everything that we need comes from you. And then notice, finally, there's humble worship. Humble worship. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. My friends, this is all part of the context of how we look at the Word of God. Do we, do we see the Word of God as, as some satisfaction 
that we need from God. God has, in his wisdom, chosen to reveal it to us. But what do we do with that? We have the privilege of receiving it. How hungry are we for that? Are we willing to be confronted? Are we willing to have our hearts exposed? Are we willing for God to have his way with us? In revival, the answer is yes. Now, you don't have to have a revival for people to be humble before God, but that's what happens in revival. People confess their sins. They repent of their sins. They want to live for God. Let's bring all this to a close. A few things just to push us a little bit into this text. Long for revival. This was an unusual day. We cannot recreate this day. We're not all going to go to Jerusalem on some special trip to the Holy Land and have thirty to 40,000 people gather at the water gate and try and recreate the moment. That's not what God desires of us. He desires of us simply to long for revival, which means that we're praying for revival. That means that we're working on our own hearts, anticipating that God could move any day, but even if he doesn't move in his own sovereign way in, in a fresh breath of revival, we are desiring to pursue his will and humble ourselves before his word, but long for revival. Secondly, be a man or woman of the book. Now, friends, I, want, I just want to challenge you. I, I love our digital age. I think it's helpful and it's handy, but there's something about having a Bible that you can get your hands on. Something about knowing that this particular psalm is on this page and being able to write things down. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong or it's sinful to use technology. I like it. I, I use it a lot. But I want to encourage you, get familiar with the old-fashioned Bible, if you want to put it that way. Just learn how to navigate through it. Learn where things are so that you can walk your way through it. Yes, the technology and the tools that come with it are helpful, but there's something about having it at your fingertips like this. Be a man or woman of the book. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, this is where you go. If you want to know how God wants you to live your lives in this world, this is where you go. If you want to know the true answers to so many of the world's questions, this is where you go. We must be people of the book. The final thing here is this. Be ready, if you're going to do that, to be radically changed by God. The more time you spend on the Word of God, the more heart surgery God is going to do on you. And you may have to cut some things out of your life. You may have to change how you think. You may have to change your attitudes and your behaviors. You may have to change relationships you have. You actually may have to change how you approach ministry because God is speaking. Turn with me to John chapter 6 as we just bring it to a close. John 6. Years ago when I was in high school, they were getting ready to put the, uh, I was going to a Christian school, and they were getting ready to put the um, final touches on the seniors' 
pages, and each senior was required to come up with a life's verse. I had no idea what a life's verse was, and so I did a quick hunt, and I found a verse, and this actually happened to be what I chose, and not really knowing why I chose it, but now, having chosen it, it has been an incredible help, God's providence, his sovereignty, and leading me here. But John chapter 6, and I want you to notice what Jesus here says in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The fresh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Listen, the Holy Spirit works his will in the hearts of God's children by virtue of the word of God at work. Friends, that's where life is. If we're people of the book, if we're hungry for the book, if we're passionate about the book, the Holy Spirit is at work, molding us, shaping us, directing us for what he wants us to be, for what he's called us to do. Lord, help us today to learn how your word, your living, breathing word, must be central in the life of the church, in the life of your people. Oh Lord, it's so easy to be distracted by programs and peripheral things. And they're many times good things, Lord. But oh Lord, we, we have your truth. And Lord, we certainly don't want to worship your truth. We want to worship you who revealed your truth. So Lord, help us to have a hunger and a delight and a joy and a longing for your truth to be at work in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.